0: Salutations, all my cyber friends out there. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am really excited to bring another episode of our podcast to you. Uh, Today, I am joined by a relatively new friend, Evgeny Haram. Evgeny and I, I think we met on LinkedIn, and then we ran into each other at a conference up in Toronto. Uh, We've had some super interesting conversations. It's, um, It's funny because both of us have been around a long time, and I think you have to Sometimes you got to dig a little bit and figure out how you meet people. So thank you very much for for joining. Evgeny is currently uh, acting as a uh, self-employed evangelist and advisor in the cybersecurity space. So it's nice to meet another fellow evangelist. Um, one thing I learned since I started at Kite a year and change ago, there are a lot of people out there with evangelist roles, don't necessarily have the title, but uh, I think it's uh it's it's a funny thing. So thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you are having a good day so far.
1: Thank you very much. Very, very happy to be here. I actually know Black Earth for a number of years and I interviewed <laughs> some of the people from Black Eyes, so it's kind of nice to come back and do interview oh, with you guys as well. And you're right about evangelism. I think a lot of people express their opinion. And somehow during the COVID time, because we all moved to virtual, people now had the stage to present and tell more about what they think. And I think it's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The problem, though, as you know, some people, some people talk about things that they don't necessarily know a lot about. And, and I think it causes some confusion in, in, in the market. Many Many people are self-proclaimed experts. I personally don't like to call myself an expert. I am an experienced practitioner. All that means is I've been around a long time and I've made a ton of mistakes, and I have hopefully learned from them. But uh, I I do agree that that COVID has definitely given people an opportunity to yeah and be
1: a little bit bring more a out very there. Very good point. You you bring a very very interesting and good point. If you don't make mistakes, you cannot learn. I personally know that for myself, the fastest time I ever learned is when I needed to fix a problem for the customer. If I didn't know a yep. subject and the customer have an issue somehow you find superpowers super strengths to spend 48 hours with the customer with support with books with RTFM and you fix the problem and you never forget
0: yep you, you know it's funny you mention that and then we'll, and we'll jump in but I, I've always been uh a fan of sort of that just in time thing. I spent time in consulting and we used to tell the salespeople all the time, you sell it, we'll figure out how to deliver it. And sometimes that meant spending, you know, four days in a data center with the manual and uh and and a keyboard. So uh I I agree with you there.
1: So I spent 15 years working for a VAR and MSSP and in the beginning, when we're growing, you're like, hey, you guys sell whatever, we'll figure out. But then right. when you we grow, we're like, you know what? Right. Now it's time to stop. Please don't right. sell whatever. We want to make sure we deliver what the customer needs. It's actually possible. We can. It's actually going to work. So let's align before you sell. This is how I went and spent quite a lot of time on pre-sales, on a technical pre-sales, because I wanted to make sure whatever we sell to the customer is first, what the customer needs. Second, it's actually possible to do, and the team is able to implement this.
0: Right. No, I I agree, and I think the bigger you get, the you don't want to end up selling five thousand different products. Oh. All right. So let's um let's jump in. So as everyone knows, we always start off with a movie question. So here's my question for you, Evgeny. Um, name a movie that did what you would consider a spectacular job with scenery, with background, with whatever is sort of behind the characters?
1: And it can't be CGI. And it's a very interesting and tough question. You mentioned CGI. So I have a background in photography. I spent quite a lot of time doing sports photography for myself and shooting Ferraris, Formula One, and different things. And when I learned photography, very smart people explained to me in the beginning that before you take a picture, look in the background. If there's a the garbage mm-hmm. can behind you, it's not a good picture. It's maybe good for history Or, or the memory. light pole sticking
0: out of the top yes. of people's heads. That's my favorite.
1: <laughs> so definitely Avatar is the scenery, but Avatar is very CGI and not realistic. It's a beautiful, amazing movie. You know, there's Lord load of the rings. But if I want to bring it back to more realistic, John Wick, number four, just came out. Two weeks ago like three weeks ago and i watched it recently and i was amazed on what they did with wide angle i was amazed how they took big pictures big sceneries like water candles buildings and how they showed what's happening if any of you watch this like the end of the movie wednesday i don't want to spoil the movie for everyone but oh don't, no don't sunrise,
0: don't do that like, they have a
1: sunrise <laughs> and it's just beautiful like how they combine the scenery of buildings, of sun, clouds together with the action.
0: Yeah. I I agree. I think it was a beautiful movie. Beautifully shot, both in the front and even some of the indoor scenes, I think are are beautiful, you know, the way they pass behind things and in front of things. And you know i won't ruin it but if anyone knows john wick they know there's a lot of fighting in it and one of the cool things is some of the people can't see each other necessarily and they're listening and they're trying to figure out and and throwing things so i think that's uh that that is a a great choice so i'll i'll give you mine and it's a bit of a cheat cuz it is somewhat cgi but to me the the lord of the rings uh trilogy had some of the most beautiful scenery. And, and as we know, a lot of it was shot in New Zealand. And they do actually a Lord of the Rings tour in New Zealand where they take you to all of those things. But in part for me, what was special about that is I've read those books, I would say, 20 or 25 times. You know, my dad introduced them to me when I was a kid. I'm a big fantasy person and I just love, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I love it, but to me, I thought Peter Jackson did a great job of visually putting things out there that I had had a vision of. And I mean, you know, if you read a book and you see a movie and you go, oh, that person doesn't look or that building doesn't. And I just thought they did a great job of sort of bringing bringing that that to life. And I thought that was very powerful.
1: It was definitely phenomenal, especially in the beginning, the first one. It definitely made me to put New Zealand on my bucket list and go visit the place. Uh, Still didn't go there, so I hope in the next few years I'll be (laughs) able to go.
0: Maybe you and I will find a conference we can go together. Uh, Well,
1: this is what I learned. This is interesting. I want an interesting story. I recently did a ski and snowboard cybersecurity conference with a couple of friends. Mm. Yes, in Toronto, Interesting. definitely one of the first one, I think so. We combine basically two hobbies. If you like cybersecurity, and like skiing in conference, then you quite a, like right away have something to talk about it. And the reason i bring you this here, because I never did a keynote speech for a conference. And this was on my bucket list. And when we were doing the conference, I realized... I don't need to because I can have my own conference and I can be the keynote speaker for my own conference. So we just need to have a conference in New Zealand. That's it, you know. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, we. I was at an event in uh, in New York City a couple weeks ago, and there was uh, a CISO who actually flew into New York from from New Zealand for. For the the conference, I, I've been to Sydney a couple of times, but never made it across. And I think people don't realize New Zealand is actually quite far from Australia. I think people look at it on the map and they think it's it's super close. So you know what? Offline, you and I'll take that. Maybe you and I will have our own conference. All right, sounds good. So um, let's talk a little bit about cybersecurity. And I think your your movie choice was a great transition, right? One of the things, and I think we can say this without ruining the story the movie takes place in a lot of historic cities, right? So there's Berlin and there's Paris. And one of the things that I love is the architecture, right? The old buildings and and seeing old buildings in comparison with new. And I know you and I have talked a couple of times about security architecture. So why don't we talk about security architecture uh, a little bit? Um, So I'm going to ask you maybe a bit of a leading question. What is security architecture? It sounds it's, like a simple question, yeah. but I don't think it's a really simple answer.
1: It's not a simple question. This is a simple question, but the answer is definitely not, not simple because depend what you are and who you are, it will meet something else. For me, and I'll explain for myself because it's probably different for other people, is let's say we're building a... Building, as you mentioned, you know, and we want to architect the building. So the architect will be the person that will come and create the blueprint, the idea. He will able to have have a 50,000 view and go down, down, down. But he will not going to be the guy who's going to install the windows. He will not going to be the guy who's going to install the electric part or the walls. But he will have an idea. And he will trust that the people who are going to build the electric part, build the walls, will do it a good job. And they may also come back and tell them, dude, you know what? The wall you chose are great, but this is a different way to do it or better way to do it. Or maybe hey, it's a good idea what you decided, but it's not going to work from our experience. So it's a collaboration. So if we bring it back to cybersecurity, let's say we want to build a new cybersecurity architecture in a company. And this will not be just cybersecurity, because we need, cybersecurity architecture sounds strange a bit, we need to build a new network, a new office, for example. So we're gonna have a network layer, switches, router, Wi-Fi, we're gonna have servers, we're gonna have endpoint security, we're gonna have many different things that will need to work together. The architect is gonna have a view how all this works. He will go and talk to many different people, to see the integration I'm a very very big believer of integration and connected infrastructure and he will be able to design this he will may, maybe not be the only one he maybe will have a security part and somebody else will come into the network part but he will not be there by himself There's going to be engineers similar to workers installing the walls that will have their own way they will say oh this is not a very good endpoint because of xyz Oh, the firewall you chose is great, but it's not going to work in our environment because we using a different routing protocol It's not supported. And there is going to be another factor because you have people that design and architect. we have engineers that are going to go build and implement. And we have the operation folks that will need later on to go and operate the environment day by day. And they, in my mind, need to have a say as well. Yeah, this is amazing, but it's impossible to maintain. It's going to be very expensive to maintain. We're not ever able to upgrade it or move it, for example. So this is, in my view, one of the ways on security architecture. You take in multiple different products, multiple different parts, and you building and design them all together. I work for a VAR, and I need to design an architect networks for companies, but I work with architects on a company side where they did the work internally.
0: All right. So so I, there, I have a couple of questions uh, there. So first thing, do you think that organization should have a specific separate security architecture function, or do you see it as a subset of EA enterprise architecture? Uh,
1: yeah, you brought EA. So first of all, unfortunately, if you're not a very large company, you probably don't know to have EA. Majority of the mid-sized companies don't have such function. You probably need to be a bank or very big financial or other institutions, probably more than 20, 40,000 people to even have such function. If you have such function, in my mind, it should be almost like EA for cybersecurity. That should be probably under the EA umbrella because the enterprise architect have a much better view on IT and what's happening with the business in general. Now, business part is also very important. It's going to be very arrogant from architecture to build something. It's going to be very expensive without understanding the cost and if it's actually helping the business. Now, so yes, under EA. Two, if it don't have an EA, there should be several probably teams that all report to a CISO or report to somebody technical or CTO that help to design and have a better overview. They're not always need to go to the needy gritty stuff, the low level design, but they need to have a very good understanding how everything is working.
0: Okay, yeah, so I, I agree. And I think you hit on something really important, which I saw in a previous life when I was in consulting, we had, did a project for a global bank and um, we spoke with the head of enterprise architecture. and we had this meeting and he laid out their plan. And I said, so here's the problem. In theory, you are 100% spot on, but in practice, nobody can implement it this way. Right. And he said, "Oh, you're right. And he got on an airplane and flew back to headquarters. And then we saw their EA document two weeks later. And it was exactly what he initially put out there. And it turned out it was not implementable. So how do you, I mean, you mentioned all the different sort of people, but who, how, how do you see successful architectural functions work where they bring in all, because let's face it, right? You could end up with something very antagonistic where everybody's yelling at everybody else, right? Or you could end up with an organization or a meeting where everybody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go and they do their own thing. How do you bring it together so that it's not just Aligned from a business perspective, from a data perspective, from an operational perspective, but also implementable.
1: So first of all, I always blame the firewall guy. No, it doesn't matter what he happened with the firewall guy. <laughs> and I think right now it changed because the more you move the stuff to the cloud, now it's the DevOps person, not the firewall guy. <laughs> uh, but when I started in network security and my background is network security, I was working at Checkpoint to, as a QA analyst. And then I moved to become a firewall engineer and move up in the career. I realize that the network folks don't talk to the endpoint security folks. And you remember when the XDR part started and nobody knew mm-hmm. what it is and people still don't know what it is. Uh, but the XDR, one of the ideas that we're going to combine user and network, so endpoint security network security. But if they don't talk to each other, what's the point to combine them? And when I was talking to people around six, seven years ago, that I think we're going to end up seeing vendors playing in the network space and the user space. Like now Cisco Palo Alto checkpoint will always just do network, and then McAfee's Cloud CrowdStrike will do their own stuff. But in reality, right now, it's combined. What does it mean that the network people need to talk to uh, user people about the network security? They will need to talk to cloud security, they need to talk and understand what's happening. Same with the network, like the the switches, the router folks, if you don't talk to the firewall people, you're not able to design together. So for it to work, first of all, unfortunately or fortunately, we need to come back to people skills. I call it soft skills and go and communicate. And we need to really think about what's more important. You mentioned you did consulting work. I did also quite a lot of consulting work when me and the team will come to a company and we'll help them with their cybersecurity program. So I'm coming to a CISO and I'm saying, hey, I'm going to help you to have a better program. If this particular CISO has a big ego, he's like, you tell me how to do my work. So like, okay, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. I didn't want to oh, like have a bad day for you, but I'm here to help. So if you understand I'm here to help and not take over your job, then be great. So when network and user and cloud and DevOps talk to each other, if they understand they're here for something great, they're here to build the business to become better, and it's not about the ego, it's not about their own life, then it's become much easier. And this is a role of the leaders in the company to explain, guys, we're trying to build something together. It's not about who did it, who is the best, who want to take all the awards for become the best engineer, whatever it is. And this has to be company culture. So this is one problem we need to fix, company culture. Second one, how we do what we call security by design. Can we actually start planning something and have a monthly calls with other departments and understand what they need? As you mentioned with this EA architect, he did the design by himself. He never probably consult with the engineers and operation people to see- No, because he was
0: possible. the smartest guy on the planet. He knew everything. And those are the scariest people to me. <clears throat> Anyone who says, no, nah, I got this, that's scary.
1: <laughs> you kind of mentioned a good story because when I work a lot of the sales folks, where I will hold this idea that if you're a salesperson, you never answer technical question. Not because you don't know, because you're going to be a smart guy in your room like, ah, you think you know what you're doing? I'm going to show you who is right here.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that was a very common thing. When I was at Gartner for 15 years, I, you learn very quickly how not to step on the ego of some of these executives, the CISOs and, and, and the CROs. And you, you hit on a couple of really, really important things. And I kind of want to pull because I don't want those things to get buried. You hit on culture which is really, really critical. Um, for years, you know, you've been around for years, people viewed security as the people who said no and the people who stopped things. And I think that that's changing. It's slow, but it's changing. But I think everyone needs to have the bigger picture, right? I, I've said this on podcasts before, and I say it all the time. Your executives care at a simple level about three things, money coming in, money going out. If something bad happens, who's in trouble, Right. Now, there's obviously a lot of detail underneath that, and how you you figure those things out, but my experience is the farther down the stack you go, I feel like people lose that visibility right when they're when they're at you know the technical when they're doing the keyboard, I feel like they don't always have that that sort of ability. so where do you see that coming from and and more and more, we're seeing CEOs ask these questions, and COOs and CFOs. But where where does this, you know, we hear tone from the top, right? Where where does that come from in your experience in organizations that are successful at this?
1: So, first of all, you're absolutely right. The people on a higher level basically they're talking about profit, it's talking about availability, and it's also lesson for us to know how to talk to them. Mm-hmm. If we go on and say, oh, we need to buy a new antivirus. It's going to cost like gazillions gazillion of dollars. It's like, no, we don't need to. And then you explain, no, but if we don't do this, we may not be able to work. We're not able to make money. We're going to be down, blah, blah, blah. So it's a different way for us to talk to them. And yes, people on a keyboard, a lot of the time care about the firewall, about the endpoint security, about the malware, about the nuances, and not looking in the big picture. So what is the business main function? If you're a retail store, your main function is to sell whatever you sell, is not to have the perfect end-user EDR antivirus, for example. And this is people need to remember this. But it comes to open communication in some cases from leadership, and what's happening. The leadership need to explain where the company goes. So if you're a bank, and you plan to have a branch without people in the next five years. If you're failing to communicate this to the people because you're afraid people are going to leave and say, I'm not going to have a job, then your IT people will don't know, they need to stop thinking in, oh, we're going to have printers in a, in a branch, we're going to have IP phones in a branch, and I need to design this. You said, oh, in five years, there's going to be a branch without people. So my completely assumption, how we're going to build is going to be different. And this come back to communication. You need to be successful to explain. Even so, it's scary. It's risky because you may see people, oh, people going to leave. People are afraid from change. This is actually a good topic. People are afraid from change. There's a lot of study that shows, oh, there's going to be a change. People become scared. People become angry. You continue with the communication. You walk them through on the change part. And you're like, oh, okay, this change is not so scary.
0: Right, I, I agree. Change. People don't like change. Um, you know, I talk all the time about the the functional problem of people doing things because they've always done them, or doing things the way they've done them because they've always done them. And I have a bunch of stories that 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 I share with people. But I think architecture is a great way to help people understand. And I think one one of the challenges that I have seen, and I'm not an architect, so. Uh feel free to correct me if I misspeak. But I feel like people hear architecture and they think Visio, right? They think network diagrams, but architecture, it's got to be a data architecture and a business architecture. And I feel like if we're not looking at all of those, I feel like we end up falling short. Has has that been your experience as well?
1: So there's Visio is a one part, but not the only <laughs> part. When I did tra- uh firewall designs, we always talk about traffic flows. In, out, east, west, whatever it is. Great. So this is working for the firewall. But what if I take endpoint security? What if I take a database? What if I take an application? There should be different mechanisms. In some cases, we actually, with some of the friends, we're talking about if there is a way to have like a 3D model to represent different ways for people to connect or have a way to say, okay, I'm doing DLP, for example. There is no data flow all the time, but can I represent Which part of my architecture I capable to do DLP. It's not going to be in Visio. It's going to be some kind of different way to do it. So it's going to be really depend where and how you represent it. And I can have a low-level design, medium-level design, high-level design. And each of them gonna have a different resolution. Because on a low-level design, I may go to switch ports or maybe EC2 names if you're talking about cloud and AWS. On the high-level design, it's gonna be PowerPoint, this couple of boxes and say, this is what we're doing. And the ability of the architect is to be able to move from the very high resolution to very low resolution, if we can say this, and talk about multiple aspects. And uh, as you mentioned about people knew everything, I think it's totally fine to say that, oh, I don't know this topic. I think right now, if somebody says we know everything, it's just impossible. So it's totally okay that people that are accomplished, that people are smart to say, I'm sorry, this topic is not familiar to me, but I'll gonna get back to you in a couple of days and I will know what I'm doing because I'm gonna do my RTFM and talk to people and understand the subject better.
0: Right. I I I like that. I there's always this conversation about whether admitting you don't know something shows weakness. I, in my opinion, I think it shows a lot of strength and you know in my previous role i talked to a lot of executives and you can clearly tell who is interested in learning and and knowing their limitations and you know i was talking about i don't like being called an expert right i don't like that i think you put yourself on a pedestal but i think you're spot on in that we need we need to incent people to be honest i don't i don't understand that i don't know what that means i don't know how that will work why don't we bring in other other resources. And I think that's, that's a really powerful thing. And I don't think it's utilized properly. I think a lot of people to are you, too quick to say, your I question.
1: don't know. Mm-hmm. So, in your experience and your career in Gardner, you talk to many, many different people. Did you ever told a customer, oh, you know what? You should do this. I saw it with a different customer. So, you bring in an idea because you saw it's working for somebody else. I use it in, the, in architecture and consulting. When I actually thought, hey, you know what? With one of my customers, we did this, they did this, actually learning from them, and I'm telling you this right now. So did you ever try this technique? And if it's this,
0: yeah, all the time.
1: idea, somebody yeah. ideas,
0: else idea? I refer to it as social proof. Um, and there's actually a, a gentleman, and I think i mentioned him before, his name is Robert Cialdini. He's a psychology professor at Arizona State University, and he's written books around this concept of influence and how to exert it. And one of the things he talks about is that social proof. Which is to your point, saying you know what? I've spoken with a bunch of people who do your job in organizations like yours, and here are the things that have worked, and sometimes more importantly, here are the things that have not worked. I think um, go- going in as a consultant or an advisor and saying I'm Jeffrey and I say so is never going to work to your advantage, right? I think you're spot on that it's really about bringing it together, and truthfully, you know, not to. Open the raincoat at Gartner too much, but that is what Gartner does, right? Gartner listens to thousands of people and then synthesizes that and comes back with here are things that work more often than not, and here are things that don't work more often than not. And I don't like the term best practice, but I think you are I was just thinking about best practice. Yeah, <laughs> no, I hate that.
1: I, I hate as well. That
0: yeah. term makes me crazy. Um, but but I think that. Architecture is challenged in this area for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I still think it's not as mature as some of the other areas. But I think the fact that we're seeing this big shift into the cloud, and we're hearing all about AI, right? ChatGPT is the you know the buzzword of the day, um, and you know I'm sure it'll be something else you know next week. But everything's changing so quickly right? If it takes you six months to build an architecture, some of the stuff, the assumptions you made at the beginning are no longer valid at the end of six months. So are you seeing people move? So if we if we use software development as a, as a metaphor, right? Software development used to be very much gated to waterfall, right? Okay, we're going to do discovery and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. Now we see people doing agile and those types of things, right? Are you seeing architecture being done that way as well? So that more like iterative, let's do quick testing, let's fail fast, so?
1: So, there is one important part that I think change how we architect stuff in a general way, not just in security, and it's APIs. And I'll explain why. Because 10 years ago, the idea of API almost didn't exist because of network security. If, right. you, if I locate it inside the organization and you locate it outside the organization, I need to open firewalls, I need to create the VPN tunnels, right. there's a lot Separation. of stuff to do to connect. Right now, we pretty much have one port open from a company, 443 no, and DNS to connect. But we kind of simplify the stuff. But because we move to a cloud and in the cloud, I cannot really block all the ports. I only need to have a way for you to connect we come up with the APIs. And I'm not going to go into software architecture right now because it's not my subject. But API right now, open APIs provide a way for me to connect much easier to you. This way, of course, there's authentication and talking how I'm doing this. But if I have an API in my program, you have API in your program, and you want to connect between us. It's much easier right now because you have your rules of engagement. I have my rules of engagement. It takes maybe hours or days versus weeks or months to connect between two companies or two software parts that never spoke to each other. If I want to connect Salesforce to some kind of reporting mechanism and both have APIs, it literally days. What does it mean? It means the architecture becomes simplified as well. If I have an endpoint security in the cloud, and the same in the cloud, both with APIs. I don't need to string stuff using syslog to understand how I'm going to compress this. I just connect between the two APIs, and they connect it. We have companies like Axonius, uh, Capture One, that are doing asset management by idea to connect to everybody else. In reality, in the past, it will take them ages to create all these connectors. Right now, much, much easier. We have Dropbox that can connect the DLP system to understand your your files and move files from one to another. So it's become much easier to connect. So the architecture and how quickly we can move and interact with each other become faster. Now, it doesn't mean when you create your own software or your own architecture internally going to be the same. But you can take components and connect them together much faster as well.
0: Now, do you see that, though, having a negative impact on risk exposure? Because now people who wouldn't necessarily be able to do it on their own now can make these connections without talking to security, without talking to the network folks. Are you, do you see that as, obviously, there's benefit to being able to do it quickly, but are you seeing risk exposures there?
1: Yes, because we come back to shadow of IT in a way, and we come back to risk, uh, not risk management in the way, but vendor management. So if I want to onboard a new vendor, is there as a protocol how to do this? Or let's say I want to share a file with you. If I just don't have a way to do it, I'm going to go and open my own Dropbox. But also there should be a mechanism for you to onboard a new vendor. Let's say I'm a new open bank company and I need to understand your credit score. Can I go and connect to a vendor to get this information without understanding from IT? And security, how secure is this vendor and what they're doing with my data and how the connection is going to be done and where they store the credentials and what's happening with the credentials. Are they encrypted? And the whole nine yards of questions we need to ask. So yes, we always kind of, there was a good talk about uh, majority of the stuff are created for kind of use, easy of use. When we did email security, sorry, we did email SMTP by definition was very, very secure. Then we realized how to secure it. DNS is, was for resolution. Then we realized there's DNS poisoning and other problems in the market. We need to understand how to secure it. HTTP was unsecured. Now we figure figured out how to secure it. We moved to a cloud because we wanted to scale faster. Then we figure out people can attack it and we need to secure it. So there's always right. kind of, we started something because it's easy. Actually, ChatGPT, good example. ChatGPT is amazing for many, many different things. People were like, oh my God, great, great, great. Until like, wait a second. You put in corporate information, intellectual property in ChatGPT, and what's happened with it? Who's going to see this? So right. But it didn't take a day or two. It took probably a couple of weeks until people realized it's a problem. It's a cool yeah. tool to do stuff. Well, no one knows, no one knows
0: what data it's scraping. And I don't know if you saw, but uh, Italy just banned uh, ChatGPT. Now, I don't know how you ban a piece of software by country, but I, I think we're going to start to see a lot of... a a lot of pushback there, but you, you said something really important in, in that uh, we're always chasing the new technology from a security perspective, right? The business goes out and does this. And then we got to go, Oh, like, how do we, how do we protect that? And, and how do we not get in the way? And, and to me to circle back, right. If you do a good job with architecture, you will be caught flat footed less often because you'll have the process and you'll be able to say, yes, we can help support that goal here. Here's a starting point, even if it's not a full stack, but here's a starting point. So, so I think you you just really sort of reiterated how critical good security architecture is, right?
1: And it's what you call secure by design. And usually, unfortunately, you don't do this from day one. You learn your lesson. You realize, oh shit, I screwed up here. screwed because my French. And next time you're doing this, like, Okay, I need to think about logs. I need to think about availability. I need to think about many other things that are going to build something new because you already, in a way, learned your lesson. Back to, back to making mistakes.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree, and I think um, I think we need to learn from from the mistakes, and I think we unfortunately seem to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, and. Part of that, I think, is a visibility thing. I think part of it is the perception that security is not important. But I think the flip side too, and and I always CISOs always give me a hard time. Security is important, but it may not be as important as some people think, right? We still have businesses to run, and security needs to facilitate that, right? We I hate to say enabler because that's a buzzword, but I think you know um, there was actually. Student a couple of years ago uh, who wrote this great paper, which basically said, is security important? And what's interesting is he he was a student, but he wasn't even a cybersecurity student, he was a mathematics student. And he talked about how, you know, we've been hearing the sky is falling for years. And we've seen, don't get me wrong, we've seen companies have huge breaches and there is financial impact, but they're not going out of business. You know what we see? We see banks going out of business because they're doing a terrible job managing capital, right? These are the things that are there, and I think what we need to think about is how can we feed into that so that everyone understands. Look, this is one of the many risks that we need to address. So you not mentioned, less important you mentioned risk.
1: You know, we, we come back to risk, and this is going to be a conversation. How far I take cybersecurity? What is the basic things? So let's reference some of the frameworks like CIS. 18, not 20 anymore. So I still want to call it yeah. 20. I don't know why it's, That makes uh, me nuts.
0: Yeah. 20 is an X number. 18 is what is that? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, <laughs> like, they basically say if you do the first four, you're going to be like 60% better. Like, asset management, I think, what are you happening? Uh, yep. Like, NAST has a lot of different controls as well. But where I'm taking this, when you start a business, and you mentioned, okay, I may have a breach, but I didn't lost my business you want to define what is the basic. So for example, malware, ransomware. Okay, let's say I cannot prevent ransomware, but can I do a backup? Is backup Bye. become important? Is it part of my architecture? Now, okay, okay, I'll do backup, I'll be smart. Um, do I do backup on the same server? You know, do I have backup on the same user that Evgeny used to login? How do I separate this part? so what was the joke about it uh when you when you, if if you basically doing consulting or you want to be compliant it's like i have ransomware and it's, and, and where is the backup on the same server okay backup is encrypted you know so- right. <laughs>
0: right no so- i mean i i think you're you're spot on there and and i think you're right and and I, that's why i've always been a big fan i think frameworks are important for a variety of reasons but more often than not the the Frameworks provide the value of if I go and I say you need to do this because I say so, no one's spending that money or making that investment. But if you use the framework, you can say we've picked this framework, you know, NIST CSF or, or CIS, etc. And and then at least it gives us the ability to explain why we're doing the things that we're doing. And I think that explanation is lacking. I think we we have a tendency and I'm guilty of it. We have a tendency to tell people you need to do this and never explain why. And then they, yeah, our users think it's arbitrary, right? So There's a security guy why, saying no again.
1: Yeah. This is why I don't like also the idea of best practice because there's no best practice. It's somebody, John, Jeffrey, John, somebody wrote this document. It's not, it's not right. God, it's there's a human being. But if you can explain that, oh, if you want to achieve this using this technology, this method, the best way to do it is this. So you basically become very precise to what you're trying to do and not generalize. This is the best way to create a firewall rule base or to deploy endpoint security. It's going to be depend on your company, on your use case, on your architecture, on your design, where are your people located. So you become a bit more precise. Now, with the frameworks, you basically take, not just one, two people that wrote the best practices, you take quite a bigger chunk of brain of people and they say, we did this based on statistics. We think this is the more important part. You may disagree, right. but it become back to mathematics. It's statistically better to start with this. I always reference when you go on an island and there is nobody there, are you going to think about uh, risk? Are you going to think about what's happening with you in a week? No, you're going to do the basic things first.
0: Right, what right. How do I open movies? that coconut so I don't mm-hmm. starve?
1: Yes. You, 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 you find fire, you find shelter, you build a wall, and then you start thinking about the bigger potential threat. And why we know this? Because we went camping, because we watch, mo- because we watch movies, because we read books about it. Same as this. We read some frameworks. We understand how they're working. We understand what people, other people doing. We understand what's effective in the beginning, and then it really dependent.
0: Yep. No, I agree. All right, Evgeny, we could talk all day, and and I'm sure next time we run into each other, we will. Uh, But I just want to kind of do a quick quick recap. Um. So, uh, best scenery movie, John Wick four. Love John Wick four. If you haven't seen it, you got to go check it out. Um, big companies tend to focus more on enterprise architecture, but for smaller companies, they still need to figure out some way to come up with, with this, um, this standard approach. Um, everyone blames the firewall guys, or at least they used to. Now they blame the dev, the d- DevOps people. Um, and, and the other one that I think is super important that you hit on a little while ago was the fact that APIs have made things easier, but they've also made things more difficult. And I think that's a really, really important thing. We're hearing a lot. I know you and I up in Toronto a little while back, we we're, we're meeting with a colleague about SBOM, Software Bill of Materials, and, and those kinds of things. So um, any last final thoughts before we, uh, before we wrap up?
1: Yes, I think it's important with how fast everything is moving is to sometimes stop and reflect to see what's happening. And it's probably going to be like my personal ask because I think it's important. If somebody on LinkedIn reach to you and ask for help because they're in the beginning of their career, spend 15 minutes with them.
0: Absolutely. Love it. Mentoring is super, super important. So, okay, uh, great, Evgeny. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been another episode of Risk and Reels with our guest, Evgeny. uh, And we had a great conversation. I'm sure we will have further ones. Uh, Everyone out there, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. We have a couple of really, really cool ones coming up. Uh, I won't ruin the surprise, but you will not be disappointed. So with that, I want to say thank you, and Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackhide, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.